You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. We're going to be jumping back into uh, the Gospel of Luke this morning for a few weeks. Uh, I noticed Sunday, no, today is Sunday. I noticed Thursday or Friday as I was glancing at the app and texted Tori and um, Jake and said, well, uh, this will be our 20th message in the Gospel of Luke, and we're finally to chapter 8. So I don't know if I need to speed up or if we just need to house them in the app by volumes, but... Um, Luke is a rich book, so I invite you now, if you've got your Bible with you, uh, maybe your, your uh, LMBC app open, turn to the sermon notes section, turn to chapter 8, uh, if you have your Bible with you. And I will tell you before we begin that there are, are certain things that are difficult to discern how they apply to you. Um, the text and the message this morning will not be one. Every single one of us are in one of the four categories this morning. Our heart, our mind exists there that Jesus speaks of. And sometimes it's harder to figure out how you apply something to you. I was driving by uh, a new subdivision being put in uh, the other day, and it said, from the 750s, and I knew that did not apply to me. (laughs) That applied uh, to other people, a different demographic. That's not the case this morning, so I want to uh, not waste much time by way of introduction. It is uh, not only a, a familiar parable, it is the most frequently um, quoted parable in the Gospels, most significant in all four Gospels. So I want us to look at it this morning um, and allow it to speak to us. Let's begin in chapter 8, verse 4. The parable of the sower, which should probably rightly be called the parable of the seed because it really has nothing to say about the sower, but everything about the seed and the soil. Let's look at verse four. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others, I speak in parables so that though seeing, they may not see, though hearing, they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it. But they have no root. They believe for a while. 
But in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, as we bring ourselves before your word and underneath your word in delightful submission, I pray that you'd speak to us this morning. God, I pray that you would have all those in this room and online by your sovereign grace that you intend to hear this word from you this morning, God, and that you would make our minds and our hearts soft. Father, we come this morning, as you well know, in all kinds of different places. Father, some of us have had good mornings. Some of us have already had really bad mornings. God, some are held in the grip of your grace this morning, saved, being sanctified by your spirit, walking and pursuing you. God, some in this room, some watching online, still remain in darkness. Father, I pray that your word would do its beautiful and mighty work this morning by the power of your spirit to the good of your people. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I can't remember a few minutes ago if I said uh, this parable's found in all four gospels or, or the three synoptics, but it's the three synoptics, whatever I said. Um, somebody told me last week I said that uh, we had a book in the bookstore that is on sale for just under $200. I meant it's just under 200 pages. So... <laughs> When you speak and teach a lot, you inevitably say some things incorrectly. So that book is still out there uh, under 200 pages. I struggled with it again right there. And I will say, um, just by way of an aside, those of you I know were asking for uh, copies of Martin Luther's The Bondage of the Will last week. We ran out of those, but we have a new stack in on the little round table out there uh, toward the front of the bookstore. So if you want to go buy that, uh, certainly I think if you're going to read one work from Martin Luther himself, that's the one you want to read. All right, let's look at this passage. Very, very well known, very familiar, but very interesting and quite startling. If you look in verse four, we see that there's a, a large crowd that's gathering around Jesus. And if you pay particular attention to the ministry of Jesus, anytime there's a large crowd gathering around him, Jesus inevitably thins the herd. Jesus seemed to have been very concerned about not affirming false followers. Jesus seemed to have been very concerned about not affirming false followers. People that were, if you will, sort of uh, just there for the moment, caught up in whatever. They're coming out from town to town. If you'll remember, if you've read or were here when we uh, preached through chapter 6, of the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus there distinguishes between those who uh, simply hear the word of God and those who hear the word of God and respond, and they put it into action and into practice. While many, he's saying, are evangelized, not all are saved. 
While many may hear the message of the gospel, hear the word of gospel rightly proclaimed, not all respond. There's mystery there well beyond what we might just chalk up to human free will. And part of what Jesus is saying to us this morning, what we need to hear right now, what you need to hear, and what I had to hear and submit to throughout this week, is that how you hear the Bible when it's being taught and when it's being preached is absolutely crucial. It's significantly important. It is of the highest importance how you hear the word of God when it goes out. Jesus doesn't just instruct here. He chooses to tell a story. He chooses to tell a parable and to teach by parable as he sees the crowd gathering around him. Alistair Begg makes note of this and says that parables separate the sincere listener from the casual hearer. We'll learn more about that uh, in just a minute. The reality is you do not, uh, in a sense, get to grips with the message of Jesus from a safe distance of detached curiosity. And in our churches, in the U.S. and throughout the South and the Midwest, our churches still have significant numbers of people that are there on a regular basis, but who sit from the message of Jesus, the word of God, with a detached curiosity from a distance. J.I. Packer, in his um, significant little work, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, reminds us that when we preach the promises and invitations of the gospel, whether from a pulpit like this or whether you're sharing with a friend or coworker, classmate or neighbor, and we offer Christ to sinful men and women, it is part of our task to emphasize and reemphasize that they are responsible to God for the way in which they react to the good news of his grace. That's why there's such danger in men and women who sit in church week in and week out, off and on throughout the year, year after year, without responding. They're hearing and hardening their hearts. Maybe that's you this morning. I can tell you, in a crowd like this, that will be some of you this morning. You've been in church off and on. This is, this is not weird for you. You know how to navigate this. But your heart has remained hard and does so this morning to the mercy and grace of God, to the saving grace of Jesus Christ and to his lordship. And I pray that by God's mercy this morning might be different. Let's look at the text. And I, I wanna just ask you uh, to move down, if you will, to verse eight. Toward the end here, Jesus, he starts out, and if you pay attention to the, to the words, to the verbs here, chapter four tells us that he, he simply tells a parable. He tells the parable. But the end of verse eight says that after he's told the parable, he called out, he cries out. He speaks with stern authority and says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. He doesn't say whoever has ears, let them hear. There might've been one or two without ears. Maybe a Roman sword had gotten one of them. They got a little lippy uh, with a centurion or a soldier. But he, he doesn't say that. He says, let those who have ears to hear. And the implication is that we can have ears that what? That, that don't hear. 
that don't hear, that aren't listening. And then he quotes Isaiah 6, 9 in just a minute. But I want us to take this exhortation seriously. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that it is as such of the human condition and sin that we can sit under the word of God. We can sit at the feet of the son of God proclaiming the word of God. in his great incarnation, and still have ears not to hear. Still have no intention to take what he says seriously, to let it get into our minds and down into our souls and mess us up and rearrange our priorities and our lives. Having ears to hear. Jesus goes on and he says something that's actually quite intriguing. His disciples ask him what the parable meant. I like this. It reminds us that the disciples were good guys, but they were not overly bright in many areas, which should encourage many of us. They were a little dull when it came to spiritual things. Um, and they were this way his entire ministry. So they say, hey, t tell us what you're talking about with the story. We've seen sowers. We know how this goes. You've got the bag over your shoulder. You're pitching seed out there everywhere. We know that some of it falls in different places. What are you talking about with another of your rambling stories, Jesus? And he says to them, as he begins his explanation, he said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God. That's just the, the, the mystery of God's redemptive and salvation plan that is now being revealed in Jesus Christ. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. Has been given to you. It's, it's a passive form of the word there for them. They've not done anything to receive it. They haven't, in a sense, wrestled it out of Jesus. The heavenly father has, has given it to them. But to others, I speak in parables so that, and then comes this quote from Isaiah 6, 9. Though seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they may not understand. What's fascinating here is Jesus is saying in a sense, and you can go look at this and study it on your own later. You guys are sensible people. You're smart. Jesus is saying, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to make it easier on the crowd. I'm trying to make it harder. And that's often not what we've been taught about parables. We've been taught that Jesus takes the spiritual truth and he, he takes a story and he throws them together so everybody can get it. But by Jesus' own words, that is not why he told parables. That is not why he told parables. And again, verse four is part of the key to this whole thing. A large crowd from town after town is coming out. Jesus is very, very leery of crowd Christianity. We're not. We love it. We yearn for it. We get excited by it. We assume something must be radically happening if we drive by a church and they've got to have cops out on the street to let their people out. Jesus says, be very, very, very careful. Doesn't mean he doesn't do things in crowds. We see a couple of early evidences of that in Acts, but we see no more evidences of it after the opening chapters of Acts. But Jesus is always careful. He does thin the herd. Some of you remember in John chapter six when he gets completely weird. They've got a, a large crowd again gathering, following him and the disciples are like, yeah, man, 
We're riding the coattails of the superstar. We're part of a movement. It's growing. It's growing. Surely he's got to mount up sometime, not on a donkey, but on a horse. And we're going to charge the Romans and take this thing back. We're going to make Israel great again. We're going to build it back better. That's not what Jesus does. As the crowds get big, Jesus says, hey, you can't follow me unless you want to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And they're like, this dude is whack. And most of them leave. But I got to be honest, man, if you're going out to the movies with somebody, he says, hey, you can't be friends with me unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh. Like, I'm gone then. I'll jump out the moving car. They're not so different than we are. They struggled to understand what Jesus meant. And most of them really had no intention. They just liked the big stuff. Don't we love that? The analysis of the American church would say we absolutely do. That the more shine and the more show and the more programs and the more energy a church has, the more the crowds come. We like it. We like it. We like buffet-style faith. Give me a little bit of everything, even if it's all lukewarm. Parables function, Jesus is telling us, um, as a kind of, if you will, a, a filtration system that helps distinguish between genuine, earnest seekers and believers and the superficial listener in Jesus' day who's just there for the show. They're just there because that's where the crowds are. I remember, I remember Sharon and I being um, in Russia doing mission work in some year. I'm going to say 06. Sharon, that's probably not when it was. She'll fix it later. Might have been 02. Might have been 05. I don't remember when it was. But it was around there, right? Uh, and it was so interesting to learn how they had navigated the fall of communism. We don't think about this because we've had certain legal structures and systems in place from the beginning. Uh, we weren't founded with one style of governance and, and have a different one now. Um, but when, when communism fell in the Soviet Union, uh, one of our, uh, one of our uh, interpreters who was with us, who had a great sense of humor, he said, man, it was crazy then. He said, no laws, you know, you get kicked out of your apartment as long as, as soon as somebody would uh, offer more in rent and, and out you'd go because all that was government owned before and now it wasn't. So it, it was a, a feeding frenzy. And he said, you know, you might go to the store and they'd have three left shoes and no right shoes or, or whatever. You never knew. He said, but what you do is he kind of, you'd walk around. If you'd see a line, you'd just run, get in line. He said, you wouldn't know what for, but you'd think they must be giving something out good. That's the way so many in our culture think of church. Man, there's a crowd there. Must be something great. Must be something great. Jesus warns us over and over and over against this. Now, I would say there's no pride in a dying church either. There ought to be repentance and serious introspection. So don't hear me saying something that I'm not. He quotes Isaiah here, and you can go back uh, and look at Isaiah in his context if you want to. I'll just give you uh, a jump start. Isaiah is speaking to a group of people here who are uh, exceedingly thrilled about their, their own views of religion and especially God. And God is telling them through the prophet Isaiah that if you continue to close your minds and you continue to close your hearts to me, I'll speak in such a way that you don't even have the opportunity to respond. It's in a sense is, is a, a preceding picture of what we see in Romans 1, where God says, you want to harden your heart? You want to live any way you want to? You want to keep hardening your heart and keep hardening your heart and keep hardening your heart? Fine, I will withdraw the witness of my spirit from you, and you'll have no opportunity to come to me. This is not how we think of God. 
We're taught that God's sort of yearning around, kind of a, a pitiful little God, just, just crying and hoping someone will respond to him. He must be so lonely up there. This, this is not God. God has assured that someone will respond to him. God's not going to lose any along the way. Jesus says everyone that the Father has given him, John 6, will come to him, and none will be lost. These are stunning statements. We don't like it because they uh, invade what we consider our sense of personal sovereignty, and we don't have any. We don't have any. Daryl Bach, who's an esteemed New Testament scholar, especially in the field of Luke and Acts, very simply says this. Because if we're honest, verse 10 can be a little bit hard to stomach. Jesus says, I teach this way so that seeing they may not see, so that hearing they may not see. Bach helps us and says, in saying the parables, purpose is to conceal, there's an assumption suggested by the allusion to Isaiah that the concealing takes place for those who are resistant to hearing. So God is, no, God is under no obligation to go over or around or underneath your intentional resistance of him. He doesn't dance for us. He doesn't. It's by his grace that we've even heard the witness of the gospel, that you and I live in a culture and a time where the word of God is so readily accessible to us. In more translations than we'll ever read, more kinds of Bible, than you, you get the warrior Bible, the man Bible, the woman Bible, the I like uh, strawberry shortcake Bible, the every kind of Bible you want. Every kind of podcast, every radio station, there's no reason you and I, with our rejection of God, will stand more guilty before him maybe than any other people on the history or in the history of the world due to the amount of witness we've had and we still refuse it. James Edwards, in his commentary on Luke, says the secrets or mysteries refer to knowledge of God that cannot be attained by natural means. This is not uh, general or natural revelation. This is special revelation. God has to do a special work for us to understand our sin and the generous offer of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that he holds out. The mystery is given, Edward says. It cannot be earned or merited. No amount of research can unlock the mystery of God. For in the New Testament, as in Judaism... The mystery must be revealed from heaven in order to be known. God has to speak first in order for us to understand anything. And he has to open our hearts and minds that are darkened and dead in sin that we can understand and respond. And hence, received by faith as a result of hearing. The God who gives the mystery, in verse 10, is the same God who refuses to coerce those who wish not to see and hear. Parables like the mystery of the servant of the Lord that we find in Isaiah 49. In other words, that Jesus is going to, to come in a way that was unexpected. And the kingdom of God advances in ways that are unexpected. Not through might, not through power, but by what? The spirit of the Lord. He says that in the parables... Like in the mystery of the servant of the Lord, they present the kingdom of God in hiddenness and mystery that both reveal and conceal. Both reveal and conceal. But as Jesus gets 
to unpacking this. Look at what he says in verse 11. And we could do an entire message around verse 11 alone. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. The seed is not a particular theological tribe. The seed is not a certain kind of music. The seed is not a, a, an invitation model in the church. The seed is not however entertaining or hyped up we can get. The seed is the word of God. The issue is not the sower. It's a terrible title for this parable. And just remember, like, Scripture doesn't give it that. We've given it that over years. The issue is not the sower, it's the seed and the soil. How does the kingdom of God come? How is it ushered in and grown? By the seed of the word of God. And I think that we need to hear this again because I think in our desperation, you've seen this ever since really we approached the millennium in 2000 and on, and we began to see in ways that are undeniable, and then to hear the studies and the research on the decline in the church in America, which are absolutely true in their content. We've begun to reach out for all kinds of things except that which Jesus said is the actual seed that precedes any kind of growth or change, the word of God, And whenever the churches replace the centrality of the pulpit and the word of God in the life of a church with whatever else they do, we always do that and say that rather than the word of God being central, it is the, the works or the sacrifices of man. That's why even the language of an altar call is so, it's so bad. We don't, we don't bring something to the Lord for salvation. That's not how it works. The sacrifice has already been made once for all on Calvary for the sins of mankind. That is done. We don't meet God at the altar, but in the word of God. And you'll see in different kinds of churches, and if you've had a, a wider experience in church life, some churches, they won't have the word of God center architecturally. It'll be, they'll be off to the side preaching somewhere. At the front, maybe will be a, a, something around communion or music or prayer, something we do. And I just want to say to you this morning, that's not just an architectural difference. It's a theological difference. There's a reason that we sing words like, uh, I'll take you at your word. Will you this morning? I know you'll sing it. I know I'll sing it. But will we take him at his word? Even when we're not seeing what we think we should see, even when things aren't happening on a timeline that we feel they should happen on, even when it grates against us and we want to yell back, can we still sing and mean you said it? I'll believe it. Whenever we forget this, whenever we forget it, we always make Something else central. How long has it been? Some of you this morning just need, if anything, by God's mercy, to recommit yourself to the study and submission and prayerful delight of God's word. Because if you're a normal human being, this, this tends to, to drift off in your life at times. And you need to, to re-engage and re-engage in trust 
not simply out of duty. We reach out, we make all kinds of things. We make political activation central. We make community engagement central. We get worried, we've gotta do this, we've gotta do that. We're losing our place in culture, we're declining. What if we try this, what if we try that? Friends, the seed is the word of God. If we lose our trust in that, we really do lose everything. And the word of God, Jesus says, targets by the spirit of God, those who by the active grace of God have hearts and minds that are ready to listen and to respond. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his great work, Preaching and Preachers, said this, is it not clear as you take a bird's eye view of church history that the decadent periods, the periods of corruption, of unfaithfulness, of debauchery, in the history of the church have always been those periods when preaching had declined. What is it that always heralds the dawn of a reformation or a revival? It is renewed preaching. Not only a new interest in preaching, but a new kind of preaching. A revival of true preaching has always heralded these great moments in the history of the church. And of course, when the Reformation and the revival come, they have always led to great and notable periods of the greatest preaching that the church has ever known. As that was true in the beginning, as described in the book of Acts, it was also true after the Protestant Reformation, Luther, Calvin, Knox, Latimer, Ridley, all these men were great preachers in the 17th century. You had exactly the same thing, the great Puritan preachers and others. And in the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, Whitfield, the Wesleys, Rollins, and Harris were all great preachers. It was an era of great preaching. Whenever you get Reformation and revival, this is always and inevitably the result. Why? Is it because these are great men? No. It's not the sower, it's the seed. The power is not in the sower. The sower, in a sense, doesn't matter, except he's got to be there to sow. It's the seed that matters. It's the seed that matters, that, that brings life. Boy, Jones told an interesting story. Well, you know what? I'm going to save that. I'm going to save that for just a minute. But one of the things that we take away from this is that there's a lot of, there's a lot of poor soil out there, right? And if we take Jesus' teaching of this seriously, we'd have to say that among us in here, in our own hearts and lives, there's a lot of poor soil. Because Jesus is saying this to people that are around him and are following him. And part of what he's doing here, don't miss this, part of what he's doing here is he's, he's tamping down the expectations of the apostles for what response is going to look like. He's also giving a word to, to ministers throughout history and men and women who are passionate about sharing the gospel to not have too high of expectations for all that are going to respond. And then he's giving a serious word of caution and warning to us in the posture in which we listen to the word of God. There's a lot of poor soil. And if church goes, I was thinking about this this week, if church growth gurus had written this, it, it would have gone different. Instead of a lot of different soils, you'd have had a bunch of different sowers, right? They said the first guy tried and it didn't work. The second guy came, he made some minor tweaks and it, it, it worked a little bit. The third guy came, he figured some, out, some stuff out, and it worked pretty well. The fourth guy came, and he took what the third guy had done, and he used his own wording in different colors, and it went astounding, and then he wrote a book and hosted a conference. That's how this parable would go in our day. 
But I'll just say, church, it is my deep conviction that there is nothing new under the sun. That the same thing that offered power to the church in Acts and power to the church in the second century as it faced its first systematic persecution and gave the church power in the third and fourth centuries and tended to be lost there for quite a while and by God's grace regained in the 16th and 17th and 18th century, it's the same thing that gives the church the power today. And it doesn't matter if it's the church in Africa, the church in Asia, the church in Latin America, the church in North America, the church in Europe. It's the seed of the word of God. We need to trust again the work of God in the people of God by the spirit of God through the word of God. Where else do we go? What else is our hope? for genuine life change over time. Now look at this. Jesus begins to work it out a little bit for him. Verse 12, he says, hey, you know what? Some of the seed falls along the path. It's been worn down. Any of you that are hunters or maybe come from an agricultural background, you know what it's like to see uh, the paths, even in heavily forested areas that animals make when they tend to travel the same, uh, same routes. I've seen those. Nothing grows on them because they're constantly being trampled. And Jesus says something very sobering here. He says, the devil takes that word away. And I would just encourage you this morning to not be naive about the fact that when we gather like this and the word of preach, the word of God is preached, or you're maybe in a, a smaller environment, and the word of God is being taught or just shared over lunch. There is always a cosmic spiritual battle going on. When the word of God goes out, the devil and the forces of darkness that are pushing against the kingdom of God are always at work. They don't have equal power, but they're always at work. And Jesus says in some lives, the devil's gonna be effective as the word of, goes, as the word of God goes out. He's gonna snatch it away. Don't think that it's simply uh, our human nature that makes it hard to listen to the word of God where we, we drift off and, and we draw stars and paint pictures and we talk with neighbors and pass notes and, and everything else. There's a spiritual cosmic war going on for the hearts and minds of those listening to the word of God. Don't let yourself believe that the reason it's so hard is simply that that's the nature of listening. It's not. Those kinds of things happen at a, a cosmic level. We don't see that. We don't see the word of God that goes out and the devil snatches it away before it's fruitful in somebody's life. But the next one, the next one we actually do see somewhat frequently. Jesus says in verse 13 that some seed falls on rocky ground. And the ones who receive that word do it with joy when they hear it, but they've got no root. They believe for a while, but in a time of testing, they fall away. We do see this frequently in, in, in church. And these are the kind of people that always respond if, if you're in an invitation setting where you preach and instead of the, the seed being the word of God, the seed is the invitation of the preacher. And we think that's what saves. Not the word of God going into a soul by the power of the spirit and producing regeneration and empowering an individual for conversion and to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, this, this kind of rocky soil person, man, they're always gonna come forward. You get some good preaching, you get some good music, they're on their way. 
they're on their way. They've done it by the millions in the last 200 years since we've had this sort of invitational culture. And they're not there a long time after. They're, they're excited to get baptized. We just throw them in the water, get them wet, send them on their way. Five or six months later, we don't see them anymore. They're gone. They're always the people, and I've talked with Jake about this as long as we've been together here, that you'll see the back of the connection card and everything, every single thing will be checked. Whenever we get a card like that, I tell Jake, they will not be here in three or four months. And it's not something I gloat over. It's just something that's real. It's something that's true. It's something I've seen a pattern of for 20 years now. When someone jumps in and they want to do everything all the time and they're going to lead something and they're going to start something and they're going to be a part of something and they're going to help us reform this and do that, they will not be here in a few months. It's this picture. We've seen it here frequently. False salvation. J.C. Ryle said the seed of the word springs up immediately as soon as they hear it and bears a crop of joyful impressions and pleasurable emotions. But these impressions, unfortunately, are only on the surface. There's no deep and abiding work done in their souls. And hence, as soon as the scorching heat of temptation or persecution begins to be felt, the little bit of religion they seem to have attained withers and vanishes away. It is quite possible to feel great pleasure or deep alarm under the preaching of the gospel and yet to be utterly destitute of the grace of God. The tears of some hearers of sermons and the extravagant delight of others are no certain marks of conversion. So uh, I was gonna share a story a minute ago. I'm gonna share it now. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he was a young preacher in South Wales, I would stand as often was the custom, and this is the custom in some churches today, at the door so everybody headed out, could shake his hand, say a word, hear a word. Um, and he noticed there was a particular man there who was a hard-living, hard-drinking, blue-collar kind of guy. This was the area of South Wales where he was. And he said that night, Lloyd-Jones would, would usually preach evangelistic kinds of messages on Sunday nights. He said that, that man was, was clearly um, engaged in something and wrestling with something. He was... Uh, weeping, and as he made his way toward the back, Lord Jones said, I, I was wondering, should I, should I say a word to him and ask him to stay behind and talk to me, or would I be getting in the middle of something that the Spirit is doing? He said, I decided in a moment just to leave it alone and let the Spirit do what he's doing. Man shook his head, went on his way. The next night, Lord Jones is crossing one of the pedestrian rail bridges that are so frequent uh, throughout the United Kingdom, and he runs into this man. And the man says, you know, doctor, he'd been a, a, a young medical physician before surrendering his life to the call to preach. said, you know, doctor, if you had asked me to stay behind last night, called for decision, I would have stayed. Lord Jones said, well, I'm asking you now. Come back with me. Let's talk. He said, no, I got no interest in doing it now. But if you had asked me last night, I would have stayed. And Lord Jones said, dear friend, if whatever was happening in you last night doesn't last 24 hours, I've got no interest in it. Whatever it was, it is not the real and true thing. I submit to you, church, that we have lost our faith in that. We have lost our faith in the God who saves, and we think it's us. And if we're not gonna do invitations, and we're not gonna do this, and we're not gonna do that, how will anyone be saved? The same way they've been saved for 2,000 years, by the Spirit of God. Not by our pleas. Emotions are a great gift of God. They are a terrible North Star. Emotions are a great gift of God, but they are a terrible north star. Jesus warns us 
about it here. Verse 14, he says, hey, some seed falls among the thorns. Falls among the thorns, and it's choked out by life's worries and riches and pleasures and never really matures. Can I just tell you this morning, by God's grace, I know I'm not the first one. By God's grace, I know I'm not the second one. But I gotta tell you, I'm worried about being the third one. And I'm worried for church members in our culture about the third one. See, we, we don't ever see the first one that falls on the path and the devil snatches away. We frequently see the second one, but we consistently see the third one in our churches. And if it was true in Jesus' day, it is 2,000 times more true in modern America. Where everything in the world competes for our attention on Sunday morning. Man, we travel all, and we've all got excuses. The, the, the scary thing in naming any of them in a church the size is someone gets mad and thinks, he, 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 was, he was targeting me. Not at all. These are all the same. Whether it's I'm retired and now I want to travel, or I'm just affluent enough that the three-day weekend is a normal thing. Ah, oh, my kids in travel ball, so we'll be there about 60% of the year, about 40% of the year we're out. What, whatever the case is, there's a significant warning here. J.C. Ryle says about this, that thousands of things which in themselves are innocent become, when followed to excess, little better than soul poisons and helps to hell. I mean, do you want to be somebody that never matures? This is what Jesus says here. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. They do not mature. Perhaps they remain baby Christians, held by God's mercy and his grace, but there's no maturing because there's so many other things to do. This is dangerous for us all. I was telling some friends this week that I, this week I had taken Instagram off my phone. It's not because I'm like social media virtue signaling, um, but it's because it began to get a hold of me instead of me having a hold of it. I would just scroll all the time and I wasn't doing anything else. And I would notice that my brain was uneasy when I was trying to settle down. My brain wanted to open Instagram and just scroll along. So I knew then that had become a problem for me. May not be for you, but there are dozens of these things vying for the attention of our hearts and our souls all the time. All the time. Is this you this morning? If you're honest before God, where you and I have no wiggle room, would you have to admit to him, God, I, I pursue a lot of other things, a whole lot more than I do you. And I let them choke out the maturing process that should be going on in my life. Finally, Jesus says that some of it falls on good soil. You get this? Like, <laughs> I mean, if you're doing it mathematically, you'd have to say no more than maybe 25% falls on, on good soil. One out of four of the seeds is going to land somewhere. And, and Jesus uses the seed singular here. One, two, three, four seeds. One falls here, one falls here, one falls here. One falls on good soil. And that soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. Don't get hung up on noble and good heart thinking that those who may be more upright um, are sort of ushered into salvation because others aren't. Jesus works it out there immediately after noble and good heart when he says, 
What defines a noble good heart? They're those who have received the word, retained it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Does he mean there that, uh, that, that it's our work on the other side to hold on to the salvation, to pull it in? No, he's saying if we're persevering, it's a sign that we've received the word, that new life has come, that we've been saved. It's by God's grace that we persevere until the end, that we're not falling away. J.I. Packer, I, I quoted early in the message, reminding us that we're responsible for what we do with the word of God when it goes out. Also reminds us that the results of preaching depend not on the wishes and intentions of men, but on the will of God Almighty. There's a supernatural mystery to the going out of the word of God and the gospel. Uh, I was listening, and, it, and if some of you think, may, maybe uh, I make this up to get myself off the hook uh, from time to time, uh, you can go back. This is a, a sermon in a series on Luke by Mark Dever, the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, uh, his message uh, on uh, chapters eight and nine together of the gospel of Luke. He said that Capitol Hill now has, has um, benefited for several decades by the wise counsel, the courageous, selfless counsel that a handful of men gave him when he came there in the 80s to pastor Capitol Hill Baptist Church. It had been dying for some time, like most city churches. There were a small handful, mostly of senior citizens that were still there, senior adults. And he said, Herb Carlson, Paul Huber, Frank Gibson, and Bill Brown all said to me almost the same thing at individual lunch meetings with them in the first few months I was there. He said, so much so that I thought they must have gotten together before I came and said, let's tell preacher this. And here's what they said. I've never heard this before. They said, when I have a heart attack, do not come visit me in the hospital. Dever said, why not? And they said, our church is dying and we need someone to preach God's word. Most of us are old, and if you come visit us in hospitals, you'll spend all your time visiting hospitals, and we want you to give your priority to the ministry of God's word. I was so stunned by that. He said, now, luckily, we were small enough at that time that I could usually do both, but they gave me not only permission, but a mandate out of deep Christian maturity that when my time demanded I choose one, they were solid in their standing with the Lord pour myself into the ministry of the word. As the, the band begins to make their way back up here and prepares to lead us in a time of reflection and response to God's word, I just want to remind you that when God saves, there's no question about it. We don't have to worry that his salvation is going to be lost at some point. If we don't have somebody stand up or raise their hands or come to the front and fill out a little card, I remind you that Augustine was saved as he struggled with licentiousness and sexual sin. Saved out of that by the power of God. Simply as he was reading God's word one day in a courtyard. Luther, centuries later, was saved as he was struggling with Romans chapter 1 by the Spirit of God as he was struggling with good works and religious acts, not licentiousness and sexual sin. Centuries later, John Wesley was saved 
by the mercy and the Spirit of God sitting in a Moravian Bible study that he didn't even want to be in. He had a bad attitude about it. That was most of my first 18 years of going to church. I was like, gosh, mom and dad, give me a whipping if I don't come. I'm going to come, but I'm not going to like it. And God did a work in my life. Wesley's sitting there. They're not even in Scripture yet. They're in Luther's commentary on Scripture. And the Spirit of God saves. Wesley. C.S. Lewis gets in the sidecar with his brother, Warney, and they're riding from their house to the zoo on a beautiful day in Oxford, England. And Lewis said, when I got in the sidecar, I wasn't a Christian. When I got out at the zoo, I was. God had opened my heart to believe. And my faith was now in Christ. There's a mystery, church. But don't you ever think God needs our human attempts at pushing people to do this or that or the other to save. When the gospel goes out, Jesus reminds us that the seed that produces growth is the word of God. How do you know you're alive? How do you know you're saved if you don't come down and fill out a little bitty card? You know the same way you know you have kids because they wake you up at night. And you talk with them and they talk with you. You know because all of a sudden your life's different. You've got a relationship with God. You're alive to things that you weren't before. And you can't undo what God has done. But those of us this morning who by God's mercy have ears to hear, hear. Just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. And our offering ushers are going to make their way to their positions. <laughs> when I finish praying, they'll pass the offering buckets will receive offering this morning for those of you that give on Sunday morning as opposed to online or by text throughout the week. Drop in your connection cards. If you need more time, God's wrestling with you on something, keep your connection cards. Let us know. You can drop those in the boxes on the walls on your way out. Jake said earlier he'll be out to visit with you at the Welcome Center after this. If you want, I'll be down front after the service, if God's stirring in your heart and doing something in your life and you want to talk about it, we're here for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word that is indeed the seed, the seed of new life, the seed of sanctification in our lives, of ongoing growth and change. God, the seed that produces forgiveness through repentance. Father, I pray this morning that we would not take this teaching lightly. God, that we would be both disturbed and encouraged by your word. Father, bless those who are about to give. God, bless those who are wrestling with your spirit even now. Father, have your way with us this morning, I pray in Christ's magnificent name. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lmbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.